okay? All right, so if you need a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Jonah. There's some in the back on the white cart there. Uh, would love to have you grab one. If you've got your Bible, wanted to turn to, we're in the book of Jonah. Um, if you're looking to do notes, there's some colored paper on the back by uh, the plethora of crockpots. Not going to lie, I looked at the sign up and was a little nervous. And then when I see all the crockpots in here, I'm like, oh yeah, it's Water City. Nobody signs up for anything. Except for those of you who did sign up, bonus points to you, so you're well on your way to a free toaster. We're glad that you've done that. So, um, all right. So we're in the book of Jonah. This has hopefully been interesting and fun for you. Um, I know the book of Jonah is one, as soon as we say, let's turn to the book of Jonah, it's one that if you've grown up around church or grown up around people, church-ish people, or even in the West, um, you probably have some mental pictures of the book of Jonah or the story of Jonah. A storm, a boat, some sailors, a fish or a whale, um, perhaps a big city, a vine, those kind of things. Um, I don't know your first contact with Jonah or the last time you've kind of dug in on Jonah, but this is definitely not a kid's story. It's a story we tell to our children. Uh, it's a story that in church we put on flannel boards and, and because the characters are bigger than life, because uh, it, it, it does, it reads, it's a story. But this is filled with very complicated issues. Issues of nationalism and prejudice, issues of pride and rebellion, issues of uh, of. Well, not issues, but the revealing of a God who reveals himself in such a way that he pours out his mercy on your worst enemies. And then this story confronts us with the reality that God is the God who loves not just me. Isn't that great? God, you love me. But God, you love the ones that are most difficult for me to love. And so out of all the places in the Old Testament, this is one that's kind of the, right now for me anyway, capturing my imagination and one of the ones that's most fun to dig in on because this one is one that is a picture of the gospel in ways that are so unexpected and so challenging. And so uh, we're going to continue to keep going through this. The story of Jonah, again, it's not a kid's story. It's not about coming up with some good moral lesson to teach you to be nice. The story of Jonah is meant to cut us to the core, to expose our most, well, the stuff we'd rather not expose, actually. Now, any um, uh, bird watchers, anyone know this bird? His name's Bob. <laughs> uh, Bob the bird. Uh, anyone know? Identify the bird. Hmm. A cowbird. Nope. Good guess. A catbird. Nope. Also a good guess. One more, and you're out of here. <laughs> right. This is one actually not super common in our area, so it's okay. So a pastor told this story a few years back. Um, and, and it goes like this. Uh, an infernal sound woke me up at 5.30. I thought it was actually a car alarm. 
And when it happened again the next morning, it dawned on me that I had a northern mockingbird outside my window. So this is a northern mockingbird. Um, and it, the volume of this bird was like twice as loud as any robin or blue jay or cardinal. And this pastor tried earplugs and pulling a pillow over his head, no avail. And the mockingbird was just loud morning after morning after morning. And so he said that he tolerated the bird for the first year, but uh, the second year decided to go to war against this in the spring when it showed up again. So he borrowed a BB gun from someone in the church office, which if you've ever heard my BB gun in Backyard Story, uh, well, I'll leave that for a different, it was an expensive mistake. So he borrows this BB gun and the secretary goes, and actually you need these safety goggles as well. So it takes those things. Then early the next Saturday, he said he tiptoed into the backyard, BB gun in hand, and waited at the patio table. Some of you are mortified of this story. Nikki's just shaking. I've lost some of the room already. Okay, don't worry. So starts watching for it, spots this bird about 6.15, sitting on a power line that stretched from a pole to the house. And before he could raise the BB gun, the bird flew away. And then it was hiding on top of the neighbor's sugar maple. And then it made a few more runs from the tree to the power line to the roof to the house. And he never really got this clear shot, uh, which you should never take at a living animal in the backyard with a BB gun. Okay. All right, so um, so at about 8 in the morning, he ends up going inside and felt this, and maybe you've done this, you've, you've, I'm going to do something because I'm so worked up, and then after the fact, and maybe you didn't even do it, but you just have this realization of shame, like, is this who I am? And so he went in the house, and in going in the house kind of had this, like, oh, my word. I'm actually such a failure with a BB gun. And so the ambush proved fruitless, and so he kind of said, oh, I need more info. So he Googled killing mockingbirds, and <laughs> which, first of all, got him on a list, but then second of all, uh, you know, got him to Harper Lee's to kill a mockingbird. If you're wondering, this was last week's closing illustration. <laughs> we ran out of time. So gets it, uh, to kill, mostly to kill a mockingbird, and, and he said he knew it wasn't an instruction manual, so then he just Googled mockingbirds. And then what he found was astounding. A male mockingbird has as many as 200 songs in its repertoire. Males and females build the nest together, and they actually may call on other mockingbirds to come and protect if someone's attacking the nest. And so they're a bit communal. And the more he read, the more he was intrigued and says this, these are incredibly fascinating birds, I told my wife. And then dripping with sarcasm, she looked at him with love and just replied simply, so you still need the BB gun? See, there's, there's something about and hopefully you've never done this. If you have, we can talk. This is safe space. But there's something about getting so fixated on something that makes us uncomfortable or disrupts our 
day or our storyline that we want that can draw out of us maybe something that we would say not who we normally are. But the reality is, is the things that are drawn out of us, except for random uh, illustrations, the things that are drawn out of us are usually drawn out of us because they're there. It's not, oh my word, I can't believe this, I never, this is not who I am. No, in reality, this is usually who we are in small ways, in small decisions, maybe over the course of our whole life. But there reaches a point where it's just one more small thing too many. And then the true who we are comes out. And so um, maybe you haven't gone into the backyard with a BB gun, and that's fine. But this illustration's interesting to me because this is what we see in the story of Jonah in our text, especially today, but in the big arc of Jonah. And so... Um, it's amazing how much we can be changed by just paying attention or how much digging in and seeing things from a different angle can give us more appreciation of a thing, whether it's a northern mockingbird or this story of Jonah or how the story of Jonah is a mirror on myself. And so again this morning, same as every single week in the series and the same as every single week since we planted the church 15 years ago, this isn't a, I've arrived, you stink. This is, we are in process together on this as God is calling us away from who we used to be and who he is shaping us into individuals in the likeness of Christ. And so, just a couple things. Don't worry, we're not going to do a great big recap. If you're new this week and kind of wondering how we get to where we are, I'd encourage you to go back. Um, the podcast is up, or it's on YouTube on our channel from um, last week. But just a couple things real quick. Jonah's a real dude. Jonah, we first come into contact with Jonah the prophet in the northern kingdom as Israel's been split. And Jonah's a prophet to the king and speaking a message to the king. The king he's speaking to, we see in 2 Kings chapter 14. And we won't read this and unpack it. We did that two weeks in a row, but you can scan as I wander we get in 2 Kings chapter 14, it's Jeroboam II. So Jeroboam II is not related to Jeroboam I. It's not the same family line, but he's named after one of the worst kings in the history of Israel. It's the king who split the kingdom. And that's Jeroboam I. So Jeroboam I splits the kingdom right after Solomon's reign. You got Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And just to keep it simple... And then we're in the 800s B.C. now. So Jeroboam II reigns uh, 850s to 812s, 810s. And in the reign of Jeroboam II, we see in 2 Kings chapter 14 that he is a wicked king. The beautiful thing about First uh, and Second Kings and, and even First and Second Chronicles is as they're telling the story, you don't have to get too far into it 
to know if this is a good king or a bad king. Now, what difference does that make? At this point in the story of Israel, how the king goes is how the kingdom goes. Now, that's not the same in our day and age. Ezekiel chapter 17, God, uh, through the prophet Ezekiel, says, I'm not going to judge the land based on uh, someone else's things. That's a, we could write that asterisk, do it in November 6th. But at this point in the story, how the king goes is how the kingdom goes. And so Jeroboam II is a wicked king. But we saw last week, Jeroboam II, in this text, God speaks through the prophet Jonah to Jeroboam II, saying, you're going to expand the kingdom. And so last week we saw that here the kingdom's being expanded under this wicked king, And prophet Jonah is speaking that word to Jeroboam. Now, we could get really nerdy and look at the other prophets that were actually doing ministry at that same time, giving words to Jeroboam, too, that were actually in contradiction to what Jonah's saying. One of the other minor prophets says to him, God's actually going to yank this from you and the kingdom's going to be gone. And so we have this uh, moral difficulty of the question that doesn't ever get asked. If something good is happening in your life, does that mean God approves of your life? So does God's plan, the story of God's um, moving the story of redemption forward, from the beginning of time all the way to the time at the end of the age, does that story of God moving it forward, which is going to happen, we see it in Jeroboam 2, does that mean God approves of your life? And it doesn't. Actually, it doesn't. And see, we dug way in on this last week. We're not going to do too much with this. Don't worry, I know we got to eat. But this is so important. And this is one of the things that gets exposed in my heart in the book of Jonah. Is it's very easy for me to have the worst week. Mad at my kids. Full of just rottenness and my old sin nature raising its ugly head. And then preach a dynamic sermon on Sunday. Because I've done the research, and I've got a good illustration, and the room's generous. But the whole leading into that has been one where God's going, Jay, we need to do something about whatever. And it would be very tempting for me to go, well, that stuff's not so bad, because we had a really good Sunday. And there were some visitors, and two people came up after and said that was the best sermon they'd ever heard in their life. And great. Now, I know I'm not the only one that that happens to. And see, the problem in in churchianity is that we think because God's doing something, moving his story forward, he somehow is approving of the wreck that is in my own life. And that is a lie. That is a lie. And so the trouble with that is it's very easy to overlook it 
because good things are happening. I got a promotion. The kids are all healthy. The bank account's full. We got the new car. The neighbors who moved in we like. Whatever metric you want to use for being blessed. So, and blessing's probably the wrong word to use in this non-equation. But you know what it means. So, God moving his plan forward doesn't necessarily mean God approves of, right? And we see that in the life of Jeroboam, and we get that in the story of Jonah. So here we go. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Let's do this. Ready? So, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed toward Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, and from there found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, just a quick pause, just so we're all on the same page. So here's where we're at. Uh, Google Earth, I mean, I don't think, Jonah didn't have very good cell coverage, so his maps weren't as good as ours. But so here we are in Israel. They go down to Joppa, which is on the sea. Where's God want them to go? Up here to Nineveh on the shores of the Tigris River, up near modern-day Mosul. So God says, go to Nineveh. Their wickedness has come before me. And last week we saw that instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah gets on a ship and he goes to Tarshish, which is in modern-day Spain. Now there's some debate on this, but this is, this is probably where it is. This is literally as far away as you could possibly go in the known ancient world. Now, it's interesting, last week, and it didn't probably come through the feed, but it was so much fun because this, when we did these maps last week, y'all laughed, like, like a laugh laugh, like, man, that was great. And the beauty and the laugh laugh on that is that is exactly the response that I think the original writer of the book of Jonah would have been looking for in this, because this is ridiculous. Here we have Jonah, a known prophet of God, in this story, running from God, boarding a ship, and going as far away as he can possibly go. And then we're going to, in two weeks, look at this even deeper, but just so that we're all on the same page and have the same um, working bit of this. Jonah doesn't run from God because he's afraid. The Assyrian Empire, which Nineveh is the capital of, is the worst of the worst empires. One uh, biblical scholar says God asking Jonah to go to Nineveh is the equivalent of modern day God asking uh, you to go to Berlin during World War II and saying God's judgment is upon you. It's not a thing you would want to do. And so a lot of times in this story, Jonah's talked about in a way that there's fear in his heart, that he's afraid of the Assyrians or that they might, um, they might kill him if he comes. 
we read in Jonah chapter 4, that isn't the reason at all. And so if you want to, you could skip ahead and just scan it. But the reason Jonah doesn't want to go is because Jonah hates, hates the Assyrians. And he has good reason, we could say. The Assyrians were the Nazis of the ancient world. And they were horrendous. But God was sending him there. And um, one book that I picked up in this, it's called You, Jonah. This is a collection of poems by Thomas John Carlyle. And so there's watercolors in this and then a collection of poems. Uh, Carlyle lived 1913 to 1992. It's just these great uh, uh, poems around the story of Jonah. And here's one called Coming and Going. The word came, and he went in the other direction. God said, cry tears of compassion, tears of repentance. Cry against the reek of unrighteousness. Cry for the right turn, the contrite spirit. And Jonah rose and fled in tearless silence. This is the one, the prophet of God. The one that when we pick up the story in Jonah chapter 1, if you were in the ancient world, you would have thought, great, we're getting the oracle of God to the king because in 2 Kings chapter 14, we don't have it. There's no word. There's no quotation marks on what God said to Jeroboam 2. So if you were in the 800s or the 700s or the 600s, whenever it was written, doesn't matter, if you were in that space, you would open up or you would unroll or you would sit around the campfire and hear the word of the Lord came to Jonah, some of, son of Amittai. And you'd go, awesome. Here comes the word that he said to Jeroboam 2. Because the words to the prophets in this time and history is not a prophet word to everyone. It's God speaking to the prophet, the prophet speaking to the king. Great, we got it. And then we get God saying to Jonah, go to Nineveh. That's not the message we thought. And then Jonah leaves. And then Jonah goes as far as he can possibly go. And then Jonah gets on the boat. Not only does he go down to Joppa, not only does he go down, he goes down into the boat. There's this reoccurring theme in the book of Jonah of he's just going more and more and more down. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. In the Hebrew, that threatened to break up, it's this, it's a personification of, of the boat. It's thinking about breaking up. And all the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea, and they lightened the ship. Now, a couple of things on this. First, don't miss the way the storyteller shows how the ancients saw everything. What happens? A great and wind, a violent storm comes upon them. How? How does the storm come? 
How does the wind come? What does it say? The Lord sent. The Lord sent. Now, I know in our modern world where we think we are the judge of God, we get into stories like this and we go, I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with a God who might send a storm, with, might send some waves or send the wind. But see, to the ancients, this would never even be a possibility of a difficulty because there's nothing that exists that isn't somehow either uh, sustained or moved or controlled. Nothing happens separate from God. Nothing. And on our, our modern world, influenced by the Greeks, thanks very much, we have the spiritual and we have the natural. And sometimes the spiritual overlaps with the supernatural and we try to explain it or we try to defend it or we try to figure it out so we can make it happen more. But to the ancient Israelites, there is no separation of this. It is God of all of it. And so that should be a small reorientation for us that instead of thinking, or especially instead of saying things like, well, God showed up and it was a great service. Or we were praying and God showed up. Or, or praying and asking for God to go with someone. Those are prayers you don't need to pray. God is everywhere. There is nowhere you can go, the psalmist says, that God is not. Which is one of the massive ironies in this story. There is nothing, nowhere you can go that God is not present. Not the heights, not the depths, David says. And then Paul takes that idea and moves it even further. And not just there's nowhere you can go that God isn't, but he says, follower of Christ, there's nothing that can separate you from his love. So he's with you and being with you, he loves you where you are. Neither height nor depth, neither angel nor demon, not things past, not the stuff you've done, not things present, the stuff you're doing, not future stuff that you're going to do. None of it can separate you from the love of God, Paul says. Now, wouldn't it be great if we really believed it? Wouldn't it? Because then I would feel a little bit more, not just secure in a theological sense, but a little more right. That I'm not afraid of every moment. Does God love me? Does God not love me? Have I given enough? Have I served enough? Have I talked enough? Have I enough? God's love for you is not merit-based. And when you give your life to him, he receives it. And he holds you and he loves you. So that's different stuff for another time. But isn't it interesting in this? So what do we get? We get a picture of a God who is in charge of the wind and the waves and the storm. I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with that at the front of the story. I'm super comfortable with that when it's Jesus calming the wind and the waves. Right? Right? That's the story I want to tell. 
Not the Jonah story, where it's God who's bringing up the storm. That's theologically difficult. And you know what? God doesn't care. And there is total freedom. You're not being intellectually dishonest when you say, God, you are showing us in this story, you bring storms. Everyone, I don't know, doesn't matter. Jay, are you saying God brought Hurricane Ira? Let's be now. Jay, is that what you're saying? It's not for me to say. I serve you, we, the God who is able to. And so I'm willing to bet there were some folks in Florida who needed a hurricane to knock them off of their Jonah boat. And there were others that were suffering in that and hold that thought because we see that in this story. So, okay. So that's the first thing we see. What's the next thing we see? The sailors are afraid and they each cry out to their own God. Historically, uh, most of the ancient world is polytheistic. There's lots of gods. There's the God of that hill, that hill, that tree. There's the God of war. There's the God of fertility. There's the God of harvest. There's your neighbor's gods. There's your gods. There's gods in Egypt. There's gods up over where they don't talk the way you think they should. There's gods everywhere. And because there's gods everywhere, you are always at the risk of angering a god. And so the difference between, uh, between the God of Scripture, capital G, and the gods of the Pantheon is that those gods you don't want to be noticed by because those gods do vindictive things. Just read the Iliad or the Odyssey. Read any of those ancient myths. You didn't actually super want to be noticed by the gods. And if you were and something bad was going on, you super had to twist their arm to get something to happen, and it usually came with strings attached. That was the ancient world all surrounding Israel. But see, and we get it in the story, don't we? So the storm comes up. The boat's about to break up. Anyone been on the sea when it's been rough? Anyone been on a boat you weren't quite sure about when a storm came up? None of us. My boat can take anything, Jay. You ever have to pull your car under an overpass because the storm was just so big? We live a very controlled, insulated from this story life. They thought they were going to die. And so they each cry out to their own God, which is what you do when you're a polytheist. Hey, you, 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 and you, do your God thing. You guys do your God thing. Maybe they're Egyptian gods. Maybe they're Assyrian gods or Babylonian gods or Hittite gods or some gods. Do it. That doesn't work. So then they throw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. So they're crying out to every God they know. There's no atheists in foxholes, and they're just doing it. And then they're throwing their livelihood overboard. You don't do that. You don't do that. That's what got Han Solo in trouble, right? He jettisoned his cargo when he was about to get boarded, and it followed him the whole rest of his life, 
right? No? No one else? Come on. That was super good. All right, fine. I liked it. You're going to go long, Jay. That was it. They jettison, they lighten their load. Then what? Then what? Where's Jonah? The sailors then say to each other, Come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for this calamity. Let's draw straws. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Is that right? No, I missed one. Oh, man. Sorry. So here's what I missed. You have your Bible. You can read it. But Jonah had gone below deck, and where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. He goes down to Joppa, down into the depths of the boat, falls into a deep sleep. The captain goes to him and he says, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Why are they there? Why are they in this scene? Because God did take notice of them. It's the irony in this. If we don't expect to find irony in Scripture, we're going to miss it when it's there. And in this story, we have irony and we have satire on huge levels. The people who are supposed to do something don't do it. In fact, they're often doing the exact opposite of what you think they would do. The man of God, the prophet of God, he goes the opposite, doesn't listen to God, runs away. How can you sleep? Get up. Call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us. He had. Well, that didn't work. Jonah's just standing there. So then they draw straws. Come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this terrified them and they asked, what have you done? And then the narrator brings us back to the beginning of the story where it's, they knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. When was that in the text? You have to use your imagination. And so they go to him, they they draw straws, Jonah gets the short straw, ah, I knew it. And then they ask him, tell us whose fault this is. Who are you? Where are you from? Who are your people? Who are your people's God? What do you do for a living? And then he answers, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord. I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven. And this is more irony. Who made the sea and the dry land? Who made the sea? And what's he running on? A boat. He made this, and I'm out here running on this that he made. Now, that word, worship the Lord, In your translation, it may have a different word. It might be fear the Lord. It's, uh, I had it written down. Oh, no, I still do. 
It's the Hebrew word uh, yare. And this, this word, it, it means it's more than I sing songs to God. It means more than I give sacrifices to God. In the Hebrew, it means I fear or I have reverence or I have terror. The first place this shows up in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 22. And it's another story of God saying to somebody, Will you obey me with something that does not make sense to your brain? Genesis 22, we have the story of Abraham. Father Abraham, many sons. This is before the many sons. All he has is Isaac and the other guy that's not a part of the story yet. And Abraham, God says, I want you to go to a distant place and I want you to bind your son on an altar and I want you to sacrifice him, which is completely out of character for God. And it should shock us in that story. But we tell it to our kids on flannel boards and so maybe it's not as shocking anymore. But God doesn't ask people to kill them to kill their family for him to see if they really love him. But God says to Abraham, do this. And so God takes uh, the wood for the sacrifice, actually puts it on Isaac and even this incredible image of sacrifice and then takes him to Mount Moriah, which is, uh, historians say, where the temple mount is and where perhaps even the altar itself was built, which is very interesting. And then the story goes, and Abraham's about to raise the knife to kill his own son, and an angel of the Lord shows up. And as I think in my mind is, he's on the downstroke. He says, wait, stop. And then he provides a ram. He looks over, there's a ram in the thicket. God provides the sacrifice. It's this foreshadowing of who Jesus is. But in this story, we see Abraham, and and this is what's said about him. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. No, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And our brain goes, ding, 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 ding. That sounds like New Testament. Ding, 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 ding. That sounds like Jesus. It's supposed to. But in this, it's the same. And actually, this is where we are introduced to this idea of fearing God or worshiping God. It's more than just a head thing. It's more than just a word thing. It's more than just a song or a theology. It's a movement of life. So how offensive and hollow is it when Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't at all. He doesn't fear God. He's mad at God. He doesn't fear God. He's actually full of apathy. He's full of apathy. And so in this story, we get a picture of the prophet of God who is distant from God, running from God, refusing to do the thing God asks him to do. And even at this point, he's giving Sunday school answers. Listen, follower of Christ, in love. The longer you are around faith and the Bible and church world, the more the pull is present in our lives to become Jonah. The story of Jonah is so scandalous because we become Jonah. 
we see others and we don't want them in our country because they're going to take our jobs or they're going to steal our Hondas or whatever. We, we become protectionistic. We withhold grace and mercy. We like people who are, well, we're not rageful, but if they're rageful for me, which is no different than Saul saying, if a champion could go in and fight Goliath for me, that would sure be great. So we bring people in. I'm not full of hatred or rage or, or bad character. But if they are, well, then they can do it. And I kind of like the things they do. Jeroboam too. And see, that's why Jonah's not a kid's story. When Jonah's just a kid's story, I give it to my kids and I let them read it. Now, there are great tellings of this story for kids. Can a kid read it? Absolutely. And they can see, man, this guy seems like he's God's dude, but he's not doing what God's dudes are supposed to do. And they get it. But see, when we make it just a kid's story, then we never read it again. Man, Jonah, whale. Or we make Jonah the story of a litmus test on whether or not we believe in miracles. And that isn't the point of Jonah at all. So the sea's getting rougher and rougher. They asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down? What does Jonah not do? He doesn't say, actually, give me a sec. I'm going to talk to God. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. And then it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you, which is interesting. In scholars, there's a fork in the road right here. Some scholars say Jonah's being so noble, he knows that it's his fault. Just, just um, scapegoat me, just throw me into the sea, let's be done with me. How, what is the best way to run from God? Death. I am so against you bringing that wicked city into repentance, kill me. Jay, that's weird. He wouldn't do that. Really? Did you read chapter 4? He says, kill me twice. So maybe he has a change of heart, but next week we're going to see there's zero repentance in his prayer. He doesn't have a change of heart. He just says, just kill me. Just kill me. Man, that Jonah... Instead, the men did their best to row the boat back to land, but they could not, for the sea had grown even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord. This is the first prayer to God in the story. And who gives it? The pagan sailors. Who doesn't give it? God's prophet. What a good kid's story this is. Please, Lord, don't hold us, or please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. They're about to die because they're trying to save it. Don't hold us accountable for killing a, quote, innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, the raging sea calmed. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice for the Lord and made vows to him. Now, 
Just a couple things here. These pagan sailors are doing the thing we don't expect pagan sailors to do. Their prayer is actually inaccurate. Is Jonah an innocent man? Not at all. He's not innocent. He's been sticking his feet in it the whole entire story. And yet they, out of true repentance and fearing God, not just in words, not just singing songs, but their life in motion, God, don't hold us accountable for killing this innocent guy. Because when you throw someone overboard in the middle of the sea, they die. That's how life goes. And then they make a sacrifice. You don't burn a couple goats for sacrifice on your wooden boat. You, when you get back to land at some point, find a temple of the Lord or a place where they are worshiping the God of heaven and earth and you make sacrifice there. And so there is genuine movement in there. Jay is this saving repentance. That's the, what my evangelical mind wants to know. That isn't the point of the story. The point of the story is that the ones who are not supposed to do this are the ones who are doing it, and the one who is supposed to do it has nothing to do with it. And the cut in this is how many times that's me. Now we do have verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of fish three days and three nights. And next week we're going to take that and then the rest of it. We get stuck on that. But in getting stuck on that or getting excited about that or defending it or whatever, we miss all of the rottenness. In another one of the poems from this book called Asleep in the Deep or on the Deep, it says, Though the Lord sends winds as his messengers, some sleep through tempests and revolutions. Here's the thing I want to end with, and this isn't a joy thing, so I'm actually not sure how to get from this to Chile. We live in a culture that says, my sin is my sin, and it's a personal thing. We live in a culture that doesn't even call it sin. It just says, my choices are my choices. And don't tell me not to because this is my defining right and wrong. And as long as there's consent or as long as nobody gets hurt, it's fine. That isn't the storyline of Scripture. And I theologically and just compassionately, I know that's hard to believe, but I'm uncomfortable with this story because the sailors are going to actually die in this story. Why? Well, they're polytheists and they're pagans and they deserve to die. Okay, Jonah. They're in the place they are because the person of God isn't doing the thing God called them to do. Now, I get it. This is a story. And I don't want to make a hard theology out of a story, but this isn't the only place in Scripture we get this kind of a story. 
And so if somewhere along the line you've bought into the Western Christian lie that says, or or not even Christian lie, but just religious lie that says do what you want to do as long as you don't hurt somebody else, it doesn't matter, that is a lie. It's a lie. And we see it over and over and over and over It might not be in that moment, but one small choice leads to one small choice leads to one small choice leads to one small choice, and eventually your family's in the boat with the storm. Or choice, 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 chaos at work. Or choice, 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 fill in the blank. And you could make the case all along the way, nobody's getting hurt, but you are, you are solidifying death in your life. That's the story of Jonah. And the tragedy in the next scene is that Jonah shows who God is, and it's a beautiful picture, but he, he, he's slow on showing who he is. So what do we do with this? How do we get from this to Chile, Jay? Well, the beauty is we get to it through communion, actually. Because, see, on my own, I'm going to keep making choices that eventually lead to the boat and the shrapnel for everyone else around me. And you're the same. You're the same. It might be good paint covering up or a veneer, or new siding, but you know it. You know it. And that's the lie and the temptation of the enemy. Just do the... Listen, God is calling us out from that place into a different life. And he is the God who changes the heart of stone into a heart of flesh, the prophet says. And so maybe you're in a place today and you're just looking at things going, man, I am more Jonah than sailor. We serve a God. God makes himself known to us through the person of Christ who can take that life of just one, well, can take your life, mine, and change it out. And the world doesn't get it. The world doesn't get forgiveness or transformation. It doesn't. That's why we have such trouble with people's Twitter feeds from 10 years ago. But we serve a God who changes lives when we give him the whole of ourself and when we fear worship him. And so I don't know where you're at today, this morning with this, I specifically asked Art to lead us earlier in Psalm 139. Do you remember the words? Hear me, God. Seek out the wickedness in my heart. Change who I am. Show me the anxiety. Show me the brokenness. How do we not be Jonah? Live Psalm 139. Not where you go, I'm perfect, nailed it. First try. 
but where we go, I am continually stumbling in God. I continue to need rescue and a Savior. Search my heart, O God. Show me the wickedness in me and make it clean. And make it clean. And so let's do that. As we come to communion this morning, this is the tangible reminder to us of a God who meets us right where we are.